When you become a Christian, we then recognize that we should be achieving great things not for ourselves, but for God. And we have this drive, don't we? Don't we want to achieve great things for God? But in the end, if it's me who achieves something great for God, who really looks great in that scenario? God prefers that we receive great things from him. And that when we receive great things from him, it makes the giver look great. So Christianity is not a bootstrapping way of life at all. Rather, it says, let go of the bootstraps and reach for my hand because I want to pull you. You're not going to pull yourself. I am going to pull you. In the very first psalm of ascent, that was Psalm 120, we saw that step one was saying yes to God and no to the world. That's how you begin the pilgrimage. No to the world, but yes to God. However, we need to recognize tonight, and step four, Psalm 123, reminds us tonight that saying yes to God is not simply the initial step. We must keep saying yes to him over and over in the act of defying the temptation to say yes to myself. To say, I cannot do it. I need to keep saying yes to God. He's the source of my strength. He's the one who's going to carry me up the hill to the house of God. Right? So that's why we're looking at step four as grace. Only grace is big enough and powerful enough to span the depths between heaven and earth between God and humanity, between the top of our ascension and the bottom where the valley is. Only grace can work to propel us against the gravity that wants to pull us back down the mountain. So let's read Psalm 123. It says in the title, A Song of Ascents. Verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes Look to Yahweh, our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Yahweh. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. You may wonder, where is the word grace in this psalm? 
And the answer is, is it appears three times in the form of the word mercy. Now, I am not confusing the word mercy and grace, nor am I saying that they're synonymous. Generally, we say mercy is not getting what we deserve. You deserve punishment, so you're like, no, no, please give me mercy. I don't want it. Generally, that's how we call it. That's how we define mercy. And then grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's this gift you never asked for. It's this gift that you definitely uh, are not worthy of. I understand the difference of those words, but you see, the Hebrew for this word mercy is more often translated grace. As in the ironic, the priestly benediction in Numbers chapter 6 that the priests would sing to the Jews as they came to the temple in Jerusalem, the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. That word gracious is the exact same Hebrew word here where the psalmist says, have mercy upon us. And one Hebrew scholar who's written a translate, a beautiful translation of the Psalms has translated this as grant us grace, O Yahweh, grant us grace. And I'm not just saying that this word can mean grace. Frankly, when you read the context of the Psalm, asking God to grant us grace makes the context a beautiful picture of us and God. For here we have, in verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you till you grant us grace. You see, the relationship there is that we are like servants before God, who is our master. And servants are 100% dependent upon their master for everything. Because servants don't get to have their own say in their life. Servants don't have the ability to make something of themselves. They are given over in totality to their master, his reputation, and his work. And so they're looking to the master saying, please give us what we need. And if the master gives anything to the servant, it is an act of grace. The servant doesn't deserve, he's not at the same level as the master to receive the goodness of the master. Sure, he may care about a servant so that he doesn't break, so that he can still do his job. But what we've seen in scripture is that God doesn't just care just enough for us that we get by. God has poured an multitude, an abundance of blessing, of goodness, of his own nature, his own spirit being poured into us. We have more than we've ever asked for and more than we ever deserve. We are like servants before our master And we ask him for the grace to keep going. The grace to keep making him look great. Friends, grace is sometimes considered, and rightly so, as something that forgives us. We are in debt, we are sinners, and God forgives us grace. That's right. But we often don't go far enough with grace. Because grace is not just 
forgiveness. Grace is also freedom. It's power. It's given to us so that we can keep on doing what our master asks us to do. And in the context of the Psalms of Ascent, the grace is there on step four to say, you can keep climbing. Because maybe it's about this time when you just, aren't we high enough? Do you remember? We already said step one in Psalm 120 was we got to start with saying no to Meshech and Kedar, the place where we're sojourning, the place of the world. We're cursed. Woe is me because I'm here. We have to say no to that and say yes to God. We start the journey. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And the psalmist then explains our help doesn't come from the hills because Jeremiah 3.23 reminds us that the hills are a delusion. Israel knows that it's the hills, the so-called high places where the idolatrous practices occurred. That's not where our help comes from. Those hills need my help. Those gods need me to say you're great. They need my worship. That's not what's going to help me. So step two reminded us, keep walking. Don't settle for the easy hills. Keep going because God will sustain you. He will keep you. Step three, last week in Psalm 122, we saw that now he's looking beyond. Our, in our journey, we're looking beyond the hills and we're looking now to the mountain, the house of Yahweh. Because he says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of Yahweh. So step three was worship. Worship will keep us going because idolatry is stopping short of worshiping the creator of heaven and earth. When we worship anything less than the creator, that is the idolatry that the walk step told us to keep going on. So step three was worship. We worship God when we gather in his house under his terms. So this isn't just my private worship, although that's important. But this kind of worship is in a group. And I know the irony of the fact we don't get to do that right now. But we're looking forward to the day when we can. Because part of the pilgrimage is worshiping together. And now step four, grace. How do we get up the mountain? How do we get to the house of Yahweh? Grace. This is not, the Psalms of Ascent are not asking you and I, to get in touch with all the best self-help books out right now. It's asking us to look to God. The ascension we're on, the mountain before us, our pilgrimage is not an opportunity to achieve great things for God. If that is our aim, we will fail because we will only achieve great things for ourselves. It's asking us to receive great things things from God as a servant looks to the hand of his master or her mistress. We are looking to receive great things from God. That's grace. So in the text, there's this really interesting play. There's two interesting plays going on here. Um, The first is, I'll point them both out, um, but we're going to look at the word eyes Eyes seem to play an important role in this psalm. So in verse 1, it says, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So here there's this upward lift of the eyes. Because he says that God is enthroned in the heavens. Now, we should not 
think of God as being in a location as upward. Like, oh, there's God. So the proper way to worship him is to look up at him. When it says I look, I lift my eyes up because you are enthroned in the heavens, this doesn't mean that's where he is. Like, that's the location. The terminology here is used to refer not to his location, but to his position. It's a term of reverence. You never look down upon a king or upon a master. You look up to those who are more powerful than you. So the terminology isn't literally that God is locationally up somewhere, because up for America is a completely different direction for China, if you think about that and look at a globe. The idea is position, his role, his rank, is something you look up toward. So there's reverence that begins with this psalm. The psalm understands our place as servants. But notice, further down in verse 3 and 4, you have the psalmist turning to desperation, right? He says, grant us grace, O Yahweh, Grant us grace, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. So they're in luxury. They're kicking it back. We're servants working. And then the last line, of the contempt of the proud. It never says the word down in verses 3 and 4. But the position, the posture of the eyes is looking down all over those verses. We're looking up to our master for grace. But they, those who are not on the ascension, those who are not on the pilgrimage, they're at ease. And they are looking down on us with scorn, with contempt. And then just in case you didn't quite get where their hearts were, the very last word is proud. The proud don't look up to anyone because the proud have put themselves on the throne in heaven. They can only look down, whereas we must lift our eyes up. So this begins with an understanding of our position, that we are servants He is the master. Then, I want you guys to also notice that the eyes are looking up to our master. Um, In verse 2, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress. There um, you have the male and the female parallel. That's how Hebrew poetry, remember, works. Uh, one line will parallel the next line. That shows us that grace is for all. There's no distinction between humans. We all need the same measure of grace. But notice that the eyes have now turned to the hand of the master. There's quite a progression that has happened here so far in the Psalms. If you look at Psalm 120, verse 5, the eyes were on the self. At the very first step, the eyes are on the self. 120 verse 5. Woe to me! Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Right? The whole psalm of 120 is about, I am in a bad place. And of course, that's the psalm that God has kickstarted. It's like, yeah, look around. It is bad. 
Say no to the world and yes to God. Get going on the pilgrimage, on the ascension. But we begin with this posture of, ah, my state, woe is me. Then, Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. So now we're looking beyond ourselves and we're looking for help. Where does my help come from? And the psalmist, of course, says, don't look at the hills. But we start looking first to the hills. Then we recognize that it's God. Psalm 122. Um, the eyes are now set beyond the hills into the mountain of God. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And then it, it begins looking around and describing the city of Jerusalem. So now we're looking at the house of God. So woe is me to hmm, the hills, to ah, the house of God. But now this is an even more intimate look because now the eyes are looking to the hand of their master. Not just the house of our master, but the hand of our master. This is where we have come into a place of relationship with our master. We're no longer looking at him from afar, as sometimes we may do with theology or Bible study. Like, oh yes, God is interesting. His word is interesting. This is where we're now hand to hand, eye in hand. This is a closeness. We begin to appreciate God not as an object we talk about, define, poke at, or act upon, but rather God as a subject who does the action, who does the movement. I want to also point out the um, hand is different because the hand belongs to the master, the eyes belong to us, the servants. The hand, the hand is the symbol of control. The hand is the symbol of power. The hand is that which gets things done, which is why the servant is looking at the master's hand. He's the one with authority. We are the ones with the eyes here. The eyes look passively. They watch. They receive as light filters toward us. And that's the exact posture we're supposed to have. Grace does not take life by the hand. Grace looks at life as it looks to the master. It waits for the master's grace. That's the play here between eyes and hands. It's so comforting to know that God's the one who has a handle on things. We simply need to look at that hand. So have Mercy upon us, or grant us grace. <laughs> you know what I also like is how in verses 3 and 4 it says, we have had more than enough of the contempt, more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. Isn't that ironic, the phrase more than enough? Because that's what grace does, is grace gives us more than enough. And when we're willing to take the posture of the servant and to look at the hand of the master, we recognize that in that hand, there is more than enough. Actually, I'm just uh, now thinking about Revelation chapter 1, when John is on the island of Patmos. He's separated from his church family. And um, he has, of course, the vision of Jesus, the risen king. And 
at first he sees him and he falls down in absolute reverence. He's afraid. He's like, what am I beholding? And there's a proper posture, right, of a servant before its master. But then it's the hand of Jesus that touches his quivering back and says, fear not, for I was dead and I'm alive, and I hold the keys of death. That hand comforts John, gives him more than enough. It gives him what he needs. But then, but then John is lifted up. And John sees that in the hand of Jesus is the seven stars, which John then tells us are the seven messengers to the seven churches. You see, we look to the hand of our master and find that there in that hand, he's holding his people. He's holding the messengers to his people. If you are his servant, you are the messenger in the hand of your master. And there's no better place than to be right there in the firm grip of his right hand. That's where grace puts us. But if I'm in pull myself up by my own bootstraps mentality, a self-made person, I just got to give more oomph, try harder, figure out how to make myself more spiritual. If I'm going through all of that, trying to achieve my Christianity, I'm going to miss the hand of the master because my eyes will be too busy being set upon my own hands as they're busy and getting blistered. When all the while Jesus is simply like doubting Thomas, he's saying, why don't you look at my hand and put your finger in the hole there and see that I have done the task. You have more than enough because I cried, it is finished on the cross. It is finished. That's what the hand of our master tells us. And so the psalmist boldly teaches us that on the pilgrimage, we are to say, grace, grant us grace. And you know, our request for more does not bother God. It makes him look greater. He wants to grant us grace. That is what gives him glory. So, rather than focusing on our bootstraps, this psalm wants us to focus on becoming bond servants. Not bootstraps, but bond servants. In Exodus chapter 21, Israel had this interesting law. Exodus chapter 21, this is right after the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the things that God told Israel was, you shall never enslave each other because you were slaves in Egypt and you know what it's like to be a slave. You will never enslave each other. But if you run into hard times and you fall into debt, you have the option of selling yourself as a hired servant to work your debt off. So notice the difference here. One, you are not having slavery enforced upon you. This is willful. You are offering, you're selling yourself to someone. Second, 
um, you're not treated like a slave. You're treated, it's, it's discussed in detail elsewhere. I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 15. You're supposed to be treated as if a hired servant. So you're being treated well, and you have this great opportunity to work off your debt. And then there's another helpful condition, which we're going to see in Exodus chapter 21. And that is, you could not work for more than six years, and then your debt is paid off. On the seventh year, you're to go free. Exodus 21 verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave, so he's selling himself, he shall serve six years And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be the masters and he shall go out alone. The servant shall go out alone. But if... If, so let's say the servant had a really good time working with this master, he got married, had a good family, and he loves what was made, what he received with his service under his master. Let's say he loved it. So verse 5, if the slave plainly says, but I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring the servant to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, presumably of the temple. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. His ear gets pierced as a sign of his belonging to his master because he's decided My life in servitude to this master was so much better than anything I had out there on my own, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, that I want to stay here. So the option was given to commit oneself to his master forever. See, this wasn't forced. This was saying, I'm living better with this master than I was elsewhere. And you know, I hope you're picking up on the connotations to our Christian life here in that we have been in debt. We've been living as debtors in our sin and we're not making ends meet on our own. And then God comes and says, here, let me take that from you. Let me pour grace upon you. And then we have this opportunity to say, wow, my life under Christ, my master, has been so much better than anything I had as my own master out there in the world that I want to devote myself to him as his bondservant forever. I want to. And that is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, when he writes... Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if you're reading along with me in the English Standard Version, which I read from, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. But the footnote then says, well, it's technically in the Greek, a bondservant. So, we start off as Christ's servants, but then there comes a point when we realize 
My saying yes to God and no to the world is so good. I want to keep on saying yes to God. I want to keep on living in the grace he's granting me, my eyes upon the hand of my master, so I'm now going to devote myself to him forever. That's what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 1. In the great letter that he writes to the Romans that details the great news of the gospel, some have even called it the gospel of grace, Romans being called the gospel of grace. And here he starts off with, look, grace is about my giving up my freedom. That's where grace begins. Grace doesn't happen. I don't attain grace through my freedom. Like, oh, I'm an independent person. I'm going to get grace from God. No, I obtain freedom through grace. I don't obtain grace through freedom. I obtain freedom through grace. It's when I receive grace that I, for the first time, experience true freedom. Or to put it in the terminology here, it's when I say I am your bond servant forever, and you're my master, and my eyes are looking to your hands, and I'm asking you to grant me grace. It's in that moment that we are, for the first time, It's ironic that by giving yourself to someone else as a servant, you can become free. But here's what we have to understand, is that all of us, every human being is a servant to someone or something. Every single human being is a servant to someone or something. And in some of these contexts, you're more of a slave. The addict is a slave. The blamer is a slave. The complainer is a slave. The addict is a slave to that little microcosmic part of creation he's blown up to be his deliverer. The blamer is a slave to the person he's pointing the finger at because he's giving all of his power to them. The complainer is a slave to reality because he, rather than complying with the way things are, he wishes that he can make things the way he wants them to be by complaining. We are all slaves in one way or another. Some of us are slaves to attention. We've been seeking attention from the Father we've never had, not knowing that it's our Heavenly Father, our Master, who's going to give us all the attention we ever wanted. Some of us are slaves to money, thinking that that's finally going to liberate us to make us feel secure, not knowing that it's the hand of our Master who holds the world like a peanut in his pocket that will give us all the security we ever need. We are slaves to so many different things, It's only when we become slaves to the right master that we find true freedom. That's what Paul will then go on to explain in Romans chapter 6. If you want to turn to Romans 6, I'm actually going to be reading a few verses here, and it's worth looking at. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, 6 verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Think about this. You've been hearing about asking God for grace. And some of you are like, cool, I can do whatever I want and just ask God for grace. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how this works. See, getting grace from God is going to give you freedom. It's not just forgiveness. That's not all grace is. If all grace is is that, oh, I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want, you don't understand grace because grace is also freedom from the things you were forgiven for. It's putting yourself under another master who will give you power for the very first time. 
um, oh, I forgot to write this down, but um, James Smith had this excellent line about what grace is, and he says it's basically the hand of your maker, of a higher power who made you and loves you, reaching into your soul and putting within you a new will to love different things. That's true freedom and power. That's what grace is. It's God reaching into our being and putting a new will in us. So Paul's going to talk about that. So he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, grace being put within you, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, I'm using the slave analogy because, well, that's the best analogy we have because of human limitations. But really, when you submit yourself to Christ and make him your master, you're not a slave at all. That's what he's saying there. 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, see the little addict circle there? from lawlessness to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's not a loop. It's taking you somewhere. Four, verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have to be righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Nothing. For the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads, it's taking you somewhere, it leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This is our ascension. What's at the top? It's the life of God. We're being led somewhere. And it's not up to us to work harder up the mountain, be more in shape. It's about letting grace pull us, empower us on the way forward. And then the last verse, well-known, four. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the free gift of God, what that says right there in the Greek is, but the charis of God. Charis is elsewhere and usually translated directly as grace. So, but the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There Paul says, when I became a bondservant, when I chose to, as a servant, lift my eyes up to the hand of my master, I found the largest country ever. I was free to move about. I was no longer enclosed in this circle of complaining, blaming, and addiction. I was finally led up the mountain of God. I was free. Friends, 
It feels good to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is about what God does in and through us when we decide to become bondservants. So let's spend this time where perhaps we have a little more time to lift our eyes up to the hand of our master because our hands are not as busy maybe as they once were. And let's decide that this is not a season for bootstrapping. This is a season for strapping ourselves to the grace of God and letting him pull us up. Not bootstraps, but bond servants. And the grace of God will set us free. So, 15 Psalms of Ascent, because there are 15 steps that went up to the temple. 15 Psalms of Ascent, because there were 15 words in the priestly blessing that they sung over the people as they came and left. In the Hebrew, at least, there's 15 words. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And hear the psalm borrowing from those words. Be gracious to us. May the Lord be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.